0: So when we adopt what we are calling <coughs> the, uh, our phenomenological approach to practice, uh, which means when we uh, think of meditation and practice and inhabit it <coughs> as the exploration of how different ways of looking lead to different appearances, different experiences, different perceptions. So it's this investigation into the dependent, arising fabrication <coughs> of appearance, perception, experience, um, of self, of other, others, of the world, of things, external, internal things, etc. All of that. The exploration of different ways of looking at, uh, condition, give rise to, fabricate uh, differences in appearance, different appearances. When we adopt that phenomenological approach (coughs) as a way of conceiving what meditation is and as a way of uh, directing our practice and and thinking about practice, then uh, that will unfold uh, a kind of stream of discoveries and insights whereby we understand Dependent origination, the Buddha's teaching of dependent ri- origination, more and more deeply, more and more thoroughly, uh, really going in, unf- uh, unfolding, unfurling for ourselves the um, mystery of that and the beauty of that teaching. And in the process of that, part of the process of that is the uh, uh, development of the skill of. Uh, learning to fabricate less so we encounter we open to states uh, of less fabrication of perception less fabrication of experience and we uh... with time and in practice we extend our range on that spectrum of lessening fabrication and we develop the kind of meditative skill art know-how of moving up and down on that uh, spectrum and, and, and broadening that range And (coughs) through all of that, or as part and parcel of all of that, we encounter as stages of lessening fabrication different kinds of onenesses. As we've said before, the oneness of a kind of cosmic consciousness or universal awareness or um, uh, infinite space, infinite nothingness, um, oneness of materiality, oneness of love, all kinds of oneness others. Uh, We also encounter, uh, eventually, hopefully we open to the unfabricated, what's beyond even that kind of, uh, those kinds of oneness. And we can even go beyond, so to speak, the unfabricated, beyond the unfabricated to recognize the emptiness of all things, all, absolutely all things so that we uh, see the emptiness, the thorough emptiness, not just of the self, but also of all all things, all objects, <coughs> um, including the aggregates uh, that make up, in, in Buddhist, one, one system of Buddhist psychology, make up the kind of elements of the process of self. We see those two are in themselves empty of inherent existence. They are fabricated as well. We see the emptiness of space, of time, and even the emptiness of the unfabricated. And following this trajectory of deepening insight and the, the beauty of that path, we come to a position of freedom where we have liberated ways of looking. And we are left only with ways of looking to play with uh, and arrange and, and actually a potentially increasing range uh, of, of ways of looking. But there are, if you like, only ways of looking. is, is a way of putting it. And so in that uh, journey there, uh, w- there are various experiences of divinity that are sort of w- uh, that will emerge for us <coughs> as palpable experiences, uh, what we might call divinity. Um, that uh, emerge at different stages uh, of that process, or different stages of the insight opening, different stages of the perception, unfabricating, and uh, and, and that whole journey. So these kinds of oneness can be uh, perceived and, and felt as as uh, perceptions of divinity, absolutely, and they usually are um, by practitioners very struck by that as a teacher how people, as mentioned this before, often start talking in theistic terms when they open to this universal sense of compassion uh, that seems to be woven through the fabric of the cosmos, etc. Or this um, infinite consciousness, or whatever. Then there's the divinity of the transcendent unfabricated that's also part of that journey and the experience of the divinity, uh, of, of another kind of divinity where all is divine, because one has gone beyond, uh, seen through any duality between the fabricated and the unfabricated. That uh, we see the emptiness of that duality eventually, and it collapses, so to speak, uh, so that we can regard or enter into a way of looking that sees all things as not separate from an awareness that is beyond time and beyond space, and not mine. And then everything is sacred. There isn't this hierarchy of unfabricated, overfabricated. <clears throat> all of it is divine, but it's all, in a way, beyond time. Uh, unlike the other awareness, the other onenesses of u- universal awareness or infinite consciousness or universal love that seem to exist e- eternally, in the sense of for for an everlasting time. So on that route that I've uh, talked about and written about much before, uh, we could say that the, there are these kinds of divinities that um, uh, emerge for us, are revealed to us, we discover... And they include, if you're listening carefully, they, they will. You'll notice that that includes both the transcendent kind and what was called the immanent kind, because it does involve the, the oneness, the, the divinity here, pervading, um, woven into, not separate from the things of the world. Uh, so. That kind of unfold, that kind of direction of unfolding of divinity in- includes both transcendent and immanent uh, experiences of divinity and conceptions of divinity. But they are all universal divinity. They are all uh, uh, experiences or conceptions of of a universal divine, some or other kind of universal divine on that on that trajectory. <coughs> now, any point on that trajectory, satisfies something in the soul. Satisfies something in the soul. So, opening to universal love, that really satisfies something in the soul. Something in the soul, we might say, something in the psyche, in the chitta, really um, uh, is touched by that and really is satisfied. Is it finally forever satisfied with that? No. But something is satisfied, And the uh, fantasy that gets woven around that journey and that movement to these different stages of realization, the Eros in relationship to these different, um, if you like, uh, beyonds that we're yet to encounter, the fantasies and the Eros in relation to these universal uh, experiences of uh, universal divinity and concepts of universal divinity; those fancy, those fan- fantasies, and the eros in relation to all that is soul-making in the sense that we have been talking about it. So these <coughs> unfoldings, these openings, these um, relative unfabrications, and these seeing, this deep deeper movements of insight, openings of insight, satisfy something in the soul, and in relation to them, uh, soul-making, in the sense that we have been talking about on this course, um, is also involved. Now, if or when we really understand for ourselves the emptiness of all things, the thorough and radical emptiness of absolutely everything uh, when we certainly when we see that for ourselves, but even if we can kind of something in us intuits it before we've even seen it, or even uh, if you like something in us has faith in that that can also be quite powerful and what happens or what can happen um, is that it that's such a Insight, or even if it's only, let's say, a, a, an intuition or faith, such an insight <coughs> uh, by intuition I mean just a not complete uh, realization in the being, in the perception, in the experience, and in the understanding. Uh, what that does, that realization of the radical, thorough emptiness of. Absolutely everything. It softens the divisions that we tend nowadays in our culture to make between the real and the unreal. Because we understand there is no object of perception that is not fabricated. There is no object of perception that is not fabricated. So this, uh, we only can really... Buy into that division of real and unreal when we believe when we believe that the real refers to something, or we are vaguely refer uh, kind of implying in our thought that the, what we think of as real is something unfabricated. Going deeply into emptiness, I can we rather cannot find an object of perception that is not fabricated. It's all empty. So this because it softens the division of, of between real and unreal, it actually, uh, this is the least that emptiness does, to open up a permission and a legitimacy for exploring the imaginal, because there isn't this hardcore distinction between the real and the unreal, the, the, the real and the imaginary. <coughs> now, that... It's not quite that simple just to say everything's empty, therefore everything's uh, equally real, or real in the same way, or unreal in the same way. At a certain level, that's true. In other words, the ultimate ontological status, the ultimate um, uh, kind of reality that everything has, is that it's empty, so that ultimately they're the same. But if you, s- so to speak, on other levels... There are differences, of course there are differences. So there is some kind of um, uh, uh, differences in what we call ontic status, in the kind of reality um, that's possessed (coughs) by, let's say, a physical object uh, on the one hand and an, an imaginal perception on the other. It doesn't imply, just because everything is empty, that um, the imaginal has the same kind of ontic status as physical objects. Ultimately it does, in in both being empty (coughs) and thoroughly empty. But they're not quite the same. Still, the seeing of the deep emptiness of things, or trust in the deep emptiness of things, conviction in the deep emptiness of things, and the thorough emptiness of all things, um, gives, as I say, at the very least that it gives (coughs) in relation to the imaginary some opening, permission, legitimacy, um, freedom and flexibility to explore the imaginal. Now, I actually think, or for me, the ontology is interesting. Uh, What exactly can we say about, uh, in our ontology, about the kind of reality (coughs) that an image has? Uh, in, in our sense versus what is imaginary the imaginal versus the imaginary versus the psychic a dream or an image that is actually a kind of what we call extrasensory perception picking up on something that then happens in the future or, or whatever um, exactly as one imagined it um, and what's the difference between that and physical objects or or mental ob- uh, you know thoughts or or uh, emotions or whatever. <coughs> um, so to me, that's all very interesting. Uh, people at different points in history have um, either with a, a lot of intelligence or, or not so much intelligence and more or less kind of uh, uh, y- y- uh, value in, in terms of the use that comes out of it have, have offered different systems of ontology and explanation. But these change over history. And and on what authority could we ever even finally discover, quote, the truth about this? Um, To me, it's still interesting, and something that happens when we... really realize something about conceptual frameworks, about Logoi in general and truth. And we realize that no conceptual framework, no Logos is going to capture once and for all and universally uh, the the whole uh, truth of things, of existence, even of one dimension (coughs) or aspect of our existence. Let's say the imagination or even emotion or, or whatever. Or eros, or even materiality. I think <coughs> um, once one realizes that that kind of level of emptiness, and then to me it's possible to explore um, and play with, I said, entertain different uh, conceptual frames, different logoi, different ways of looking. <coughs> uh, in other words, different ontologies and epistemologies here, and cosmologies. Rather than just shrugging at our inability to find a final truth and then (coughs) uh, ending up just by default, as I've said, reverting to kind of whatever is the most popular uh, um, uh, worldview of ontology and, and metaphysics in our culture, Instead of just shrugging, reverting, we can actually be quite creative with this. Enter into and entertain different uh, logoi, different ontologies, different conceptual uh, concepts and conceptual systems. As one realizes something about conceptual systems and truth in in general, <coughs> and we have also uh, so in addition to to these points we've also said that um, if we just observe our life and our experiences and honestly openly without too much constricture in our uh, logos etc and what we actually observe in other words if we're quite open in what we're paying attention to so there's another kind of um, phenomenological approach here or or, or an aspect of our phenomenological approach Um, uh, we begin to recognise and, and acknowledge that eros is in our life. There's something called eros which isn't isn't really the same as craving. It's a kind of desire. It's different than what we might call craving. We need to make a delineation. Something is there that's operating already in our life. Maybe a lot, <clears throat> maybe a little. Fantasy operates in our life. Soul making operates in our life. These are delineations that need to be made. Um, once we start looking at our life and making the delineations have said actually um, opens them up further enriches them further like putting your uh, uh, prying something open putting your foot in in, in a crack in the door um, and, and and being able to open up a path we recognize acknowledge the inevitability and the necessity of eros of image of fantasy of soul making then we uh... As, as we said, repeating now, begin to explore. We can begin to explore, and what do we notice? We said, we notice <coughs> the perception of um, more dimensionality, more dimensions in the erotic object, in the erotic con- the uh, elements of the erotic constellation, the imaginal constellation. We notice dimensionality, dimensions, meaningfulness, beauties timelessness, unfathomability, all these aspects of (coughs) the soul-making, erotic, imaginal. And all these aspects, dimensionality, meaningfulness, beauty, timelessness, unfathomability, we could say they are all aspects of a sense of sacredness. We could use that word. So we we start to encounter more and more of a sense of sacredness. And why more and more? Because the soul-making dynamic, the Eros-Psychologos dynamic, tends to expansion, fertilization, um, enrichment, complication, multifacetedness, widening, deepening, etc. So that the Involved in that, implicitly involved in that, is, is the senses of the sac- of sacredness. And because that's woven into the soul-making dynamic and the expansion of your Psyche Logos, the, the senses of sacredness are also um, enriched, deepened, widened, complicated, given other facets, given other dimensions. So they're widened. Cosmopoetically, in other words, um, w- more and more the sense of sacredness spills over to uh, to, to um, infect, in, in the good sense, the way laughter is infectious, um, uh, infect the whole cosmos, so to speak. Um, it widens in that sense. It also widens in the sense that the kinds of sacredness, the perceptions of uh of sacredness, and what sacredness means to us widens the senses of what we might call divinity widens yeah so there's two at least two ways it widens there, and all this again is something that we notice if eros is doing its thing, if it's <coughs> igniting the the soul making dynamic and the eros the interplay and and the mutual um, reciprocal feeding and nourishing, and supporting and fertilization of Eros psychologos, we notice, we begin to notice this, to become sensitive to what's happening here. And uh as it implied in the Eros psychologos movement and dynamic is that it spreads to involve everything. Um, all aspects of that include, uh, that our elements are elements of that dynamic, all aspects of our being, all aspects of existence, and um, the kinds, as I said, of, of divinity. So self, other, world, eros, all those involved as elements of the imaginal constellation, of the erotic uh, soul-making constellation, and kinds of sacredness, as we said, kinds of divinity, universal versus personal Uh, versus particular, or universal and particular, gets included, um, starts to get ignited, both those faces and kinds and directions of uh, experience of divinity, and concept of divinity, both the personal and the impersonal, etc., etc. Infinite potential here unlimited, endless, boundless possibility here because um, that whole process creates, it's creative, it's endlessly creative if we don't block it, if it is not blocked as we've talked about, there's there's the creation discovery, creation uh, slash discovery of perception, of images of imaginal perception, of ideas, of delineations all that uh, means uh, that that process will be um, en- endless if it is allowed to be. And why have we harped on and on and on about the soul-making dynamic and the eros dynamic and what it involves and what it implies and what it does and how it works? Um, why? Because if we understand that movement, that dynamic, that process of soul-making, of what we call an Eros Psyche Logos. Then, because we understand it, or to the degree that we understand it, it actually informs our practice. We then understand how to practice, what to look for, what might be needed, what might be being left out, why something feels like it's, quote, going wrong, or or we feel... um, stilted, or stultified, or blocked, or stagnated, or whatever it is. So understanding, again, understanding the Logos, um, means that we can understand how to practice. How to practice. It means how to think, how to perceive, what to look for, how to work with images, all this is kind of, uh, or a lot of it is implied in just understanding this very large, um, or large-scale conceptual idea of the soul-making dynamic. And that's why, it's partly why we're going on and on about it. So, Eros involves, literally, it brings in to its, uh, to its, uh, Bubbling cauldron, uh, and, and stirs in, involves, it turns, it, it brings in to turn with, to stir with, um, the elements of soul, uh, self, other, um, world, uh, as we said, and eros will in that. Increase, if you like, and expand, and deepen, and enrich the sense of the divinity of the beloved other, the erotic object, whatever that is, and as we said, of the self and the world, and and eros itself. And again, this is w- this is uh, what we notice. <coughs> and there are all kinds of um, different ways it can do this, and different possibilities. So in regard to the self, um, mentioned on, um, uh, I think it was the Path of the Imaginal Retreat, perhaps a few times, uh, um, Corbin's uh, phrase, the angel out ahead. Um, So this angel is always out ahead, appears to me, appears to you. um, In his view, I think sometimes we have one angel, but sometimes it seems like there's more, but certainly in our view there's more than one angel. It's an image uh, that appears to us that's always beyond reach, or so to speak, is always itself growing, evolving, changing, taking a step uh, further away from us as we move towards it. (coughs) Uh, From another perspective, it's moving towards us, but... um, Uh, So there's this, again, there's this infinity there to the angel out ahead. We never reach it, that the pothos is included in our erotic relationship, as it must be with the angel out ahead. And in the uh, Jewish mystical teachings, they talk about the tzelen, the image. The image is like one's uh, counterpart, if you like, one's angelic uh, counterpart. It's what Corban's referring to as well. In some traditions, um, for example, the uh, Eastern Orthodox uh, tradition of of Christianity talk about imago Dei, uh, human beings being made in the image of God, as it says in Genesis. Um, So this selen, this angel out ahead, is not universal, it's mine appears to me in a certain way, it's the soul showing me something about myself, <clears throat> the self comes into relationship with this, somehow it's myself, somehow it's not myself, but it's divine, it's a, it, and it's particular, particular uh, to me, and particular because it, it has particular characteristics, unique characteristics and in the Vajrayana tradition in tantric practice there's the um, practices uh, taught of identifying with the deity so sort of visualizes this or that deity that usually that the guru has given one the teacher has given one <clears throat> and then practices identifying with that deity to different degrees um, and becoming that deity in in the imaginal realm in 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 the image. And this, that practice um, is, the the magical practice is based on, uh, should be based on the (coughs) understanding that I am empty and this deity is empty. Both are empty. We share an essence of emptiness, a nature of emptiness. Um, And in a way, as I said, as this gets more subtle, we can, if you like, recognize ourselves as image recognize ourselves as images and something in these kinds of teachings in the in the Greek Orthodox or uh, well, the Eastern Orthodox tradition I'm, I'm taking from a writer called um, uh, I can't remember his first name Nelas let's um, find his first name uh, Paniotis Nelas and um, he uh, says so this this teaching that if you like um, the archetype that speaks to us, the angel that's present for us, um, this being made in the image of the divine is both a gift from the divine or a gift from Buddha nature, if we from the Buddha nature, if we the gift of the Buddha nature, if we if we. Uh, play with the the wording and language a little bit, and also a goal, something we move towards. It's this um, deification of the self, Uh, uh, theosis, I think we called it, on a previous retreat. Again, of course, the ego can grasp this and hear it completely the wrong way, etc., or it can be heard um, w- with that beauty of understanding that knows the emptiness of things, recognizes image as image, and makes pregnant with dimensionality, with beauty, with meaningfulness, all the riches of the imaginal, um, ourself. Makes ourself pregnant with all that. So it's not just. Uh, the guru or the teacher that is um, in the image of the divine or the manifestation of the divine or the Buddha or whatever it is. Self is as well. And this is something we can um, open to, move towards, play with as an idea, as a way of looking, let into our lives so that the whole sense of self um, gets to have more and more of that imaginal dimension. We recognize ourselves as image with everything that's implied by that word image in the way that we're using it as imaginal image. So Meister Eckhart wrote, um, we must become heaven on earth so that God can find a home here. We must become heaven on earth so that God can find a home here. Now, we could interpret that uh, what he what he wrote as um, uh, you know on the level of saying we must become heaven and earth. In other words, we must we must create the kingdom of heaven on earth in the sense of behaving uh, with moral with uh, morality and kindness. So that morality and kindness in society creates a kind of kingdom of heaven here on earth. And then God has a home here. Um a- a- absolutely, you know, that's a really important level of interpretation there. But there's also a kind of what we might call a theophanic interpretation. We must become heaven on earth. We must become I must in my perception see myself as heaven on earth, as temple, as um, not separate from a world that is heaven, as divine. And then, seeing myself that way, living that way, God has a home here. And then maybe, out of that, the social manifestations of creating the kingdom of heaven, or uh, the Sangha as Bodhisattva, if, in another language, that will, that will follow perhaps from that theophanic interpretation, from that interpretation uh, of, of the, the deeper implications of what Buddha nature means. So, so much here, and again we're revisiting themes that we've touched on before, but so often for people the self is missed out. Um, the imaginal dimensions of the self are not filled out. Either there's a rarefication, uh, or actually there's, there's always a rarefication, either a kind of grandiose reification but more often a kind of um, uh, an inferior, a flattening and constricting reification. That's why I'm mentioning this. Uh, something so beautiful uh, is is possible for us here. And it's not, of course, the other way around. We're just interested in the, the kind of, imaginal self at the expense of the imaginal other and world and, and all that, but to include all, all of it. Thomas Aquinas, St. Thomas Aquinas said, all beauty yearns to be seen, all beauty yearns to be seen. Actually, I think the Latin says something like, all beauty yearns to be conspicuous, I think is closer to the original. All beauty yearns to be seen, all beauty yearns to be conspicuous. And there's a recognition through the um, spreading of the eros, through the allowing and exploration of the eros, of, of the beauty of the self, the beauty of what we are, of what is manifesting through us, with us, in us. Dimensionality of the self as well as of the other and of the world. All beauty, the beauty, the treasure Then all beauty yearns to be seen. And what does that mean for the way we see? And what does it mean for the way we live? Am I going to, as Jesus said, am I going to hide my light under a bushel? What is my light? What is your light? Or lights? <clears throat> so, yes, um, to include the self, or well, the self will uh, naturally There will be a tendency for the self to be included, drawn into, involved, to turn with, to mix with um, this uh, divinization process. Self and the other and the world, seeing the beauty, the divinity um, and all of that in that. And this is what we refer to as the art of perception. The art of perception flexibility in that and the possibilities of perception that can open up for us with practice with practice and this this is amazingly the case this of course if you if one isn't practicing this all this just sounds com- completely abstract far-fetched theoretical um, silly and quote metaphysical nonsense etc with practice, so much as possible, even for someone who um, comes at this starting with quite a narrow, let's say, uh, one-dimensional flatland materialist view. Uh, Just practice, just allow things, just be a little flexible, just play with perception, see what happens, see what happens to the experience, see what happens to the senses of self, other, world, etc., See what happens to the understanding. Uh, Truly remarkable. So Eros, as I said, left to do its thing, or encouraged to do its thing, supported to do its thing, will spread into every (coughs) direction, dimension, aspect, facet draw everything into that soul-making dynamic so that the eros itself, as we said, w- will, will come to be also regarded as divine, not just the self, other world, but also the eros. And one begins, through practice, opening up to um, a, a, a sense, moving in and out of a sense that human nature, my human nature, your human nature, reflects and is rooted in divinity, the divine, that we Participate in the divinity's eros. My eros participates in the divinity's eros. My awareness participates in uh, the, the the divine awareness. Awareness. My mind in the divine mind. My soul in the divine soul. My soul making dynamic in the divine soul making. My eros psychilogos in the divine eros psychilogos, and not just by virtue of sharing in a universal essence, but also through uh, the particulars, and we've touched on this uh, so many times, especially I think in the last retreat, through the, actually feeling the necessity of my particularity, of your particularities and the particular events and the particularities and uniqueness of your personhood, Necessary to the divine unfolding, to the divine uh, movement of Eros Psyche Logos, to the divine mind, however we want to say it, the divine soul. (coughs) If I don't include all that, and and if I don't uh, allow (coughs) and explore Eros' uh, image and soul making and and, and all that, um, if my mindfulness is uh, either say, without Eros or with a very limited Eros, a limited um, allowance of um, uh, what we call psyche, image, and logos, then uh, such a mindfulness may indeed open up uh, experiences of divinity, but they will also be limited, correspondingly limited, and quite predictably limited um, to certain expected um, (coughs) experiences or manifestations, faces of the divine, will come out of a mindfulness that's limited and excludes uh, a a lot of psyche or logos. So you get the divinity of this, there's this, and and the sort of... um, almost a kind of flatland divinity of this, um, this moment, this uh, this life, or whatever it is, or the divinity as flow, as the process, or the divinity of oneness, because that can also come out of um, mindfulness with, with certain limited Psyche and Logos, as we've talked about already, I'm not going to go into this too much, uh, <coughs> or the unfabricated, uh, the divinity unfabricated, that's certainly possible, if we keep out um, at least the uh, conscious exploration of image and uh, and, and and consciously uh, restrict our logos there in relation to soul, uh, but if we Understand fabrication deeply, really deeply, really thoroughly, that whole spectrum of fabrication. <clears throat> Go through the unfabricated, so to speak, beyond the duality of fabricating and unfabricating. We are granted permission to fabricate, if you like. It opens up that possibility. Fabrication is empty, and there is no duality, there is no hierarchy there. <coughs> Excuse me, and um, but not recognizing, as I said, um, the play of eros, and not giving it uh, and soul making, and not and fantasy in our lives, and not then allowing it and exploring it limits um, in quite a narrow train, as, as we described, and and. Uh, in quite a narrow train the our experiences and our concepts of divinity and depending even on how we're picking up our practice and our conception of practice, it might be even limited in terms of how far it goes along that narrow track of what divinity can be because uh, certain ways of practicing analysis are actually quite unlikely to um, to unfold very far down that track. But if we acknowledge it and we recognize soul-making, as we are saying in, in, the, in the previous talk, um, we r- recognize the fact, that fact in our life, the, the necessity, the inevitability, we explore it, and the Eros-Psychologos dynamic is allowed to expand and encourage, and it's not blocked, then the um, sense of divinity starts expanding in all kinds of directions. Um, there's uh, the sense and experience and concept of divinity starts expanding uh, and and kind of um, emerging in all kinds of directions and manifestations. <clears throat> there's a line, I only know it from um, gospel music, it's quite a common thing to, to set to music. I'm, I'm guessing it comes from a, a, a psalm in the Old Testament, My soul doth magnify the Lord, My soul doth magnify the Lord, Beautiful. Um in a way, now understanding the soul making dynamic, Eros, we can we can exactly understand um, if you like, one possible meaning of that. Yes. Soul soul, my soul, the soul making doth magnify, doth expand the divine. The Lord. Yeah? We we create and discover and we create slash discover the Lord, the divine. The soul does that, why? because that 's what the soul does, and that's what it loves. it loves soul-making. Now of course someone can hear, hear that oh, you, you see yes, um, it's creating it's fabricating this divinity. We, we've already said you know, many times it's like that whole criticism would be uh, or objection would be based on this um, implicit realism. There is something, probably this, um, uh, that is supposedly not fabricated in in someone voicing such an objection. is always harboring some kind of um, fundamental realism, even when they say they're not. Um, But we cannot find anything that is not fabricated. There's nothing that is not fabricated. So the... uh, the ob- objection kind of doesn't doesn't really stand. Doesn't it has no ground. And we understand through the exploration of emptiness, through the exploration of fabrication, dependent arising the phenomenological approach, or what we're calling our phenomenological approach, that the mind and the way of looking is not separate from perception. Perception is not separate from mind and way of looking. my soul doth magnify the Lord. The soul is not separate from the Lord, is not separate from divinity. What we're calling soul, the thing that does soul-making, the process of soul-making, is not separate from the divinity that emerges with it. Understand this. Understand this. (coughs) And we go a step further and you know, say that with um, a deep understanding and deep, um, if you like, develop, development of, of the uh, phenomenological approach and the skill in meditation, the art of meditation, playing with ways of looking, etc., understanding emptiness, understanding dependent origination, w- one possible way of looking that emerges extremely profound, extremely potent and beautiful is that... Um, the mind, or awareness, or, or the fabricator, if you like, the, the mind that fabricates, is not mine. It's anatta. Not only is it anatta, it's empty in itself. It has no inherent existence. It is, in a way, beyond time. It doesn't exist in time. So it's not mine. It's thoroughly empty, and it's beyond time. That mind is operating in me, if you like, in you, that's Buddha-nature. That mind, that awareness is Buddha-nature. doesn't belong to me. It's thoroughly empty and it's beyond time. We could say, uh, in, in some understandings, what Buddha-nature means in, in <coughs> the way I would like to use the word Buddha-nature. That's Buddha-nature. That's at least one aspect of Buddha-nature. Exactly that mind. The divine mind, is in other languages, the divine mind, not mine, Thoroughly empty, beyond uh, and beyond time. And it's this, we could say, in this way of looking, this profound way of looking as one option, it is this Buddha nature and divine mind that fabricates all perceptions. That's what's fabricating that mind. Uh, both physical perceptions and imaginal perceptions, and, and perceptions that combine the two. And those perceptions are empty, and this divine mind is not separate from those perceptions. And that is in us, if you like, that's not quite the right language, we are in it, we participate in it, that is the root of our, our mind, the root of our perceptions. The nature of our perception, this is a possible way of looking, once one is able to see that awareness is anatta, it's already quite a deep level of emptiness practice, going further and deeper, that um, mind and awareness is thoroughly empty too, has no inherent existence, and that uh, it is uh, beyond time, not separate from the objects, and those are empty too. So this becomes, with a lot of emptiness practice, as I would conceive, this becomes possible as a way of looking. My soul doth magnify the Lord, Or or God's soul magnifies God. The Buddha nature soul creates the Buddha nature. Can you get a sense, yeah, I, I know I'm talking about something very deep here, and a very deep, uh, a, a possibility of a very deep end of practice, but can you even get a sense of the, the beauty and the potency and, the, and the, uh, the depth and the magic of such a view, of such a, a way of sensing uh, existence? The Eros, uh, allowed to do its thing, supported to do its thing, will <coughs> discover and create divinities. Both transcendent and imminent, as we said, universal, particular, impersonal, personal. Actually, an infinity, an infinitude of possibilities for <coughs> the faces of divinity, the uh, experiences of divinity. And they're all available. Or they're all potentially available. Not so much this kind of divinity at the expense of that permanently, a transcendent, unfabricated, at the expense of the divinity of immanence, or uh, um, uh, in, in, you know, uh, a divinity that involves no perception, no no image, etc., at the expense of the kind of faces of divinity that come out of the imaginal. Certainly, in the moment of um, transcending perception and all image and all all perception, in that moment of what's called the cessation of perception, um, at that time, uh, it is at the expense of of image, sure. But eventually one can just move uh, and have all of this available, this kind of divinity is not at the expense of that kind of divinity permanently it's not permanently at the expense. we don't have to choose between these two in a way, both the divinity that opens up through the imaginal the divinities that open up through the imaginal and the divinity of um transcendence. Uh, in the way that we've been using using the term transcendence, the unfabricated, um, excuse me, they're both transcendent, but in slightly different ways. Excuse me. Um, so we can kind of talk about two kinds of transcendence. One is uh, the transcendence of what we've been talking about, the unfabricated. It's beyond concept, beyond attribute, as the Buddha said. It's uh, beyond any perception, etc. It's just this um, thoroughly transcendent in every respect. <clears throat> but there's another kind of um, transcendence that pertains to um, the uh, direction of divinity that opens up in the imaginal. And that's the Transcendental beyond of the potential space, so to speak, that the eros psyche logos dynamic can expand into Uh, the transcendence or a kind of transcendence of being infinite, of infinite potentiality, potentiality infinite um, potentiality of the variety of theophanies, the endless possibilities of soul making of of psyche, image, therefore perception, and logos, conception of divinity, the endless possibility of creation, discovery. So this kind of transcendence in 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 this direction is the transcendence of the not yet seen, the not yet sensed, the not yet known. So here's my beloved other, <coughs> and I look at uh, them. Uh, him, her it them uh, and uh, uh, they they I see them as uh, either an image or or as a multiplicity as potentially a multiplicity of images, and I'm, maybe I'm familiar with this um, person has become alive for me as an image, and I can look at them or be with them and sense that kind of um, simultaneous presence. Um, of the, the, the different I- imaginal perceptions of them. And yet still, there is the not yet known, that I haven't come to yet, that if the Eros in relationship to her, him, them, is uh, uh, allowed to remain and allowed to grow and do its thing in the soul-making dynamic, there will be other facets, other images. So there's the transcendence of the... Infinite of the not yet known, the not yet seen, the not yet sensed. The Eros psyche logos dynamic creates that kind of beyond transcendence and actually needs it, as we've said before. It discovers and creates othernesses. And those othernesses uh, remain and remain uh, and, and, and are still created and discovered even after a realization of um, of the unfabricated and the other kind of transcendence. If we don't collapse uh, the logos, if we don't put a, a logos there as as a as a wall as a limit to the soul making process. So as we said before, and uh, i been at pains to really want to stress on this retreat, Eros um, can incline uh, towards the unfabricated transcendent. And Eros can also incline to um, soul-making fabrication, to fabricating in a soul-making way. It can inc- incline towards unfabricating that whole spectrum that we talked about, towards the transcendent and the onenesses and all that. Um, And there's Eros in in that direction, in relation to that, and there's Eros (coughs) in the direction of fabricating for the sake of soul-making. Soul-making, fabricating. But historically, uh, this movement towards transcendence, or the idea of a transcendent God, um is, is so often put in opposition to the movement towards um immanence and God uh being here and, and uh manifestation and earth and the and the concept of that. Uh and so <coughs> I'm reading recently someone someone um I his name Arthur Lovejoy um uh believes actually in, in a way a lot of it's um Actually, I would say it's, it's just it's, it's natural to to the, to the, the once we realise what soul is and what soul does, then it's natural. But um, that that would happen. But um, that there's been such a uh, conflict has been uh, uh, that's been historically common. It, he traces it to uh, um, uh, a kind of double directionality in Plato that he didn't quite fall out, fill out. Um, but it's there also in Buddha Dharma. <coughs> Uh, in different traditions and streams of the Buddha Dharma, you see this inclination one way at the expense of the other. Usually, these days, it's it's to the uh, realm of manifestation and objects, and this at the expense of the the that the transcendent other. But historically, it, it, it's been very different, etc. So there's often this opposition uh, between the two. Uh, inclinations and movements uh, of eros towards the transcendent and the, the unfabricating and the and the soul-making fabricating. Some traditions, <coughs> and I, I would like to think now within Buddhism, and uh, also in other other tradition streams, for instance, in um, certain Kabbalistic streams in Jewish mysticism and uh, Hasidism and. Um, Different, different traditions um, talk about or in different ways conceive of a kind of just include that double movement that double movement of the eros so something that goes towards the dissolution the oneness into the transcendent into the unfabricated and something that brings God if you like brings the divine brings the Buddha nature into manifestation into the perception of the world and into the embodiment in the world so that a contradiction between these two I don't think is necessary not at all necessary interestingly uh, as I said we don't have to choose one over the other <coughs> um, interestingly we could say that each of these two movements has its what, what we might call its near enemy to use um, Buddhist language when we talk about the near enemies of the brahmaviharas, near enemy of metta is attachment, the near enemy of compassion is, um <coughs> oh, actually there's a few near enemies, but uh, you know that phrase. Um, so, the near enemy of the inclination and eros and movement towards the unfabricated, we could say the near enemy is, is vibhava tanha, vibhava tanha it's this craving for extinction for non-being for disappearance turning everything off it's the uh, say deep sleep as the phrase goes is the poor man's nirvana it's the poor man's um, extinction of perception um, so the near enemy of that movement of eros is 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 craving for non-being, for extinction, disappearance. The near enemy of <coughs> the soul-making fabrication would would be Papancha. and the near enemy of that um, uh, that movement of eros to soul-making fabrication to the imaginal um, would be uh, some kind of combination of um, what we were calling bawatanha tanha. Um, identification, it's got a realist basis of self or some object. The reality of self or object is assumed in that kind of grasping at becoming or being this or that. A combination of that and and sense-desire when what is perceived in the senses is conceived flatly, one-dimensionally, without um, the erotic imaginal. So each has its near enemy with Bhavatanha tanha on one hand, and papancha, or bhava-tanha, and sense-desire on the other hand. But we can um, open up to uh, include, allow, and encourage, actually, um, this double movement. We could even say, and uh, we could even see and enter into a mode of conceiving and... uh, Perceiving that that very double movement is divine, is the Buddha nature. The very eros towards the unfabricated, the movement towards transcendence, and the movement towards um, divinizing uh, the world of perceptions, the immanence, the soul making fabrication. That double movement is divine, is the divinity, is the Buddha-nature. That double movement discovers and creates the divine and the Buddha-nature, as we said, but it also embodies the divine and the Buddha-nature, or the Buddha-nature. So to put it in, in classical terms, as some of you will know about the, the distinction between being and becoming, but something here, because of the creative becoming in the soul-making dynamic, and the movement of Eros, uh, that it um, allows both the being aspect, if you like, the timeless aspect of the divine, and the becoming aspect of divine. God as creative and being created, Buddha nature as both transcendent and timeless, And also becoming in time, created, discovered, manifesting, outpouring in time. Love doesn't just want to melt into union, into oneness, to dissolve into unity. Love doesn't just want that. God or the Buddha nature doesn't just want you or things to be absorbed into uh, her, his, its essence. Whether that essence is conceived timelessly or uh, temporally, atemporally or temporally. Doesn't just want that. There's some eros, there's some wanting certainly for that that dissolution, that tr- kind of transcendence of that, and um, and to preserve the otherness, as we said, that Eros does. has this inclination, this necessity to preserve otherness, the perception of otherness, and actually to create more otherness. The ideas in some traditions, and again, uh in Kabbalah and and some other traditions of drawing down the divine influx, so to speak. That's the the phrase they use, drawing down the divine influx. Influx, take it metaphorically. But that drawing down allows a preservation of otherness, of particularities. uh, And particularities that are necessary to the divine. That's part of the drawing down. It's not just making everything into an oceanic oneness. It preserves the necessity of the particularity we said so many times, while, even while, perceiving an essential oneness. So yes, we know oneness, yes, it's there, but it doesn't, um, it certainly doesn't erase in the perception, but either, Erase or demean in the conception the necessity of the particularities, the uniqueness, the unique manifestations, the unique expressions of the divinity through you, through me, through this, through that, through this or that perception of self, other, thing, world, action. So it allows for and encourages the particular theophanies, the particular faces, manifestations, expressions of, of the divine, of the Buddha nature. So if we allow yours, if yours is full and vital, if there is a, say, a lot of libido, it brings a lot of liberation get liberated in multiple directions there's an openness of what liberation means if Eros is allowed and if Eros in relationship to Dharma is allowed all of this that we've been talking about and the Dharma is an erotic object for us a beloved other if you like and there can be the soul-making dynamic in relation to the dharma, the eros psyche in the dharma, the image, the fantasy, the idea of what the dharma is needs to open up through just just when we allow eros, it will need to open up. And, and as I said, we will at some point need an endless dharma, a dharma that can um, uh, that as one of its characteristics is almost um, axiomatically endless, open-ended. Uh, able to morph, to take on different shapes, explore different facets, present different facets for our exploration. A dharma that can expand. There's all kinds of. We touched on some possibilities. I think it was four possibilities for ways that dharma can be endless in that way. And each of those, you know, has many as well, or or, or implies many an endlessness. <coughs> so I don't know. Maybe some of you with um, backgrounds in ph- philosophy uh, can can see something here, and and um, we could have a little a little fun. Um, you might be able to see how um, uh, through a kind of phenomenology of eros or of soul making, <coughs> we arrive at. Um, what a lot of people would call metaphysics, through the very exploration of eros <coughs> and uh, and the imaginal, just letting it do its thing in the natural movement, we arrive at the kinds of <coughs> excuse me concepts and perceptions that are usually labelled metaphysical. <coughs> so, um, someone with indeed a, uh <coughs> a quite um, extensive uh, training in philosophy <coughs> so sent me an email a while ago and uh, uh, she, she wrote I have some <coughs> uh, there's been having some recent inquiries into her relationship with materiality, she said uh, and she realized this is probably not the most, I'm paraphrasing what she says, so this is probably not the most commonly held default position either but there is usually Uh, a mix of wonder and bewilderment, depending on my general mood, that something such as matter even exists at all. (coughs) Even philosophically, I do not have a good, quote, explanation why in the mutual unfoldment of subject and object and time and space these gross solid forms of, quote, measurable matter appear at all. Do you? she asks. exclamation mark. Um... (coughs) So, what she's talking about there, subject and object and time and space, this is um, really getting down in her practice to the sort of uh, basic, most basic conception and perception. One realises any kind of subject, uh, implies any kind of object um, uh, and, and, and time. So, the most basic, the most subtle subject, nothing near uh, a, a personality or, or anything like really subtle, just a bare um, Uh, subtle, refined, perhaps vast, awareness or moment of consciousness um, as a subject, Um, any kind of even very subtle, very refined object of that awareness, and a present moment in which it happens. So this is the basic sort of... uh, One understands the the mutual dependent arising of those three, subject, object, time, this tripod, (coughs) if you like, at the... the, um, Uh, most basic level of dependent arising and how out of that um, uh, time and uh, time is implied Uh, uh, rather uh, not the present moment is implied, present moment implies not the present moment implies past and future Something, this object can change, can be other than it is now. All this is implied, I'm I'm not going to explain it now because I've explained it elsewhere before, but this is a sort of basic, um, mutually dependent, tripodic structure, if you like, that we discover when we go deeply into dependent origination. So she's saying, uh, even that, it's like, why should there be measurable matter? Actually, measurement is part of it, because I said, there's this um, object in the present in relation to something that it could be other. This implies an other than this. And an other than this is either in space or time. Um, so time, space, subject and object kind of woven into each other, mutually implicating, mutually dependent. And measurement is part of that. Uh, things differing, therefore measuring. And again, I've talked about this uh, elsewhere, um, so I'm just going to mention it briefly now. But why matter? Why the perception of matter? Um, often it seems she can It seems often it seems almost unrelated to non-material experiential realities. So she has a lot of immaterial experiences as well in her meditation, <coughs> as if it's somewhat incidental to some extent, uh, the material. And yet it is a is fact of experience one constantly, quote, bumps into. So, she's making a joke there. Constantly bumps into, so to say. This position is not necessarily believing in a self-being other than materiality, identifying with non-material factors instead. Um, it's rather uh, as an acknowledgement of this utter mystery of how different dimensions of being, in fact, overlap and fit together fairly well. Most times, at least. Um, so she's wondering something about um, God, matter. It's it's uh, what is what is you know uh, how strange. Um, of course, from a different starting point, a non-phenomenological starting point, some people start with the belief in matter um, and then deduce consciousness and experience from that. Um, there are a lot of problems in, in that point of view as well. But if we take, and she has a background in, in as a philosophy and phenomenology in particular, um, from what we've been exploring right now, in a way, she's like, what's the explanation for my, my, the phenomena of matter, the appearance of matter, of diverse forms of solidity and substantiality as well as insubstantiality? <clears throat> well, from what we've been exploring and just having a bit of fun now the Eros Psyche Logos dynamic because of what it does I'll put this in quote explains it phenomenologically we would expect um, diversity of perception wouldn't we just in what it does it creates um, as we've explained so much before in, in in the perception in the experience multifaceted multidimensional etc etc so that um, the dimensionality of one aspect such as substantiality or solidity will begin to open up. Um, the, the spectrum of, of solidity, perceived solidity, will begin to open up and materiality is one portion of that um, p- spectrum of perception. Why? Why I'm just having a bit of fun here is, is because historically, m- metaphysics, um, as, as I explain, as I was saying uh, in in the talk, uh, the previous talk, explains is regarded as explaining and deriving um, from some kind of um, abstract postulate like the one, or God, or the good, or whatever, um, explaining and deriving um, the many from the one, or diversity, or materiality, or immateriality, immaterial levels of existence. By the way, just in case you get the wrong idea, which <clears throat> people often do with these kinds of things, like the Buddha's teaching on Uh, the dependent origination, the Buddha's teaching of the dependent origination of the perceptions of forms, um, dependent origination of mind, of uh, perception of Vedana, of subject, object, time. These these metaphysical ideas, if you like, the ideas uh, that come in certain branches of metaphysics, are not um, kinds of explanations of uh, a temporal process or descriptions of a process uh, of creation unfolding in time, uh, really. They're more, uh, if you like, logical derivations or implications, if you like, the implications of the divine, uh, the logical necessities of what follows from uh, divinity being, if you like, uh, divinity. Uh, So, like the Buddha's teachings of dependent origination, they are not really uh, temporal explanations, explanations of a temporal process, so that should be clear as well. Um, So, for example, if we conceive of the divine as infinite, then, as uh, uh, Sanford Drob explains in in the Kabbalistic context, in order for the Ein Sof, which is the, if you like, the most transcendent um, aspect of of the divine. The it literally means that without a limit, the boundless. Um, in order for the infinite, if we say, in order for the infinite to be truly infinite, it must be actual and concrete as well as potential and abstract. You understand? It can't just be transcendent because then it's not infinite. <clears throat> there are other possibilities that it needs to um, manifest if it's truly infinite. Therefore its essence as an infinite being necessarily propels it into creating a world. So there's a kind of metaphysical explanation there. Or if we take um, uh, the divine or Buddha nature or God or whatever as um, an awareness, and again an awareness that's not limited to not knowing itself, so a kind of infinite or unlimited awareness, then that must include, because it's not limited, it must include kind of self-knowing. Actually, even to properly talk about awareness, I think it, it would, would include that. The that self-knowing actually also implies the barest sense, or the barest beginnings of a division of, of subject and object. And As we said before, because of the dependent origination, that in, in, must involve or include a sense of um, time and a present moment. Um, this is the most basic sort of structure of conception and perception, barest subject, the barest object, and the barest sense of the present moment, and already involved, already implied in that, um, because of uh, dependent origination, already implied that is is actually an infinity of the not yet, of becoming, of therefore the generation of otherness just in saying that um, uh, the divine is infinite awareness. It implies this, <clears throat> not yet, this generation of otherness and, and the, uh, etc. Or, again, playing with the metaphysical way around of doing it, sort of, top, so to speak, top-down. Um, if you say, the divine is love, God is love, as, as you might have heard, or Buddha nature is love, or whatever. Um, well, love needs a loved. I need a lover and a loved. Again, there's this um, du- duality or at least polarity there. Needs uh, an erotic object, an other. It won't collapse uh, that um, <coughs> uh, duality of loved lover. Uh, it needs to preserve the the uh, the otherness, the erotic tension there. And if we say um, the divine, the Buddha-nature is infinite love, then one could say, from a metaphysical sort of direction, say that it needs infinite objects of love. And infinite love needs infinite objects of love, and so there is diversity. Or again, we could we could um, bring in our uh, our understanding of how the Eros-Psychologos dynamic works, and it works for the divine Eros-Psychologos dynamic. When there's divine Eros, Um, When there's um, the eros of the Buddha nature, it will unfold multiplicity, uh, multidimensionality, (coughs) etc., as we've been um, exploring on the whole retreat. So a phenomenology if you like uh, an exploration through observation of our own appearance and through playing of our own appearances or what appears to us a phenomenology of ear or soul making and the imaginal which means practicing with it which means as we're really exploring in practice otherwise this is just going to sound uh, all this is you know and if you've just landed into this talk without having listened to all that prerequisites, etc., and the talks that came before this is going to sound completely and utterly abstract, I imagine, and um, uh, etc. But a phenomenology in practice of eros making and the imaginal um, means, as we said, that we start experiencing the divine in the dimensions of the erotic imaginal. Yes? Um, we start to experience, we said, my eros is divine. We start to experience um, uh, uh, my your participation in the divine eros. That my eros is the divine eros. And that the soul is divine, or the soul echoes or mirrors or participates in, in the divinity, in the Buddha nature. So these are metaphysical assertions, and they sound like metaphysical assertions. They're also spiritual intuitions, and Even more, uh, what I'd like to emphasize is they are phenomenal, phenomenological inevitabilities. In other words, this is exactly the kind of experience that will unfold for us inevitably if we allow the soul-making process. Exactly those kind of what sounds like metaphysical assertions, because of the ero-psychological dynamic and everything we've explained about that and with the infinite potential of the psychologus dynamic and endless possibilities and expansion of that the necessity of discovering, creating otherness and all that we've explained about that what we arrive at then, putting all this together is something equivalent to the metaphysical explanations but backwards starting from our appearances, starting from our experience, starting from phenomenology, expanding into a sense of divinity, and then what our eros and what our soul is, perception of that, and then and then they actually become almost equivalent or interchangeable explanations. In other words, to <coughs> try and say it succinctly, when we <coughs> recognise the. Uh, presence of Eros in our life and soul-making, and we start to recognize the necessity, the inevitability of that, and we allow it and explore it, and we give a place to Eros, we pay attention to what it does and its movement what it does in the psyche, what it does in perception. Then we notice something like this Eros, Psyche, Logos, dynamic, interplay, mutual insemination, uh, mutual expansion, widening, enriching, deepening. And we notice that uh, this whole soul-making process, (coughs) ignited by Eros, driven by Eros, um, creates and discovers and creates slash discovers different facets that uh, um dimensions perceptions um of uh different uh, and different experiences it creates discovers more <clears throat> in relation to whatever it comes into contact with and it will draw more and more into that um vortex if you like into that creation discovery into that revelation so that every possibility starts um or, or there is a movement towards every possibility being opened up gradually over time every possibility of perception, of experience, of conception, of facets, of um, dimensions of a thing, of a perception, etc. If there's a spectrum of possibilities, the whole spectrum gets filled out. If there's a range there, the whole range, if there's a corner or a direction, um, that isn't yet involved in that soul-making transformation, the transformation that soul-making uh, <coughs> instigates, then that corner will start to be filled and and involved. And one part of that w- it, one, included in all that is the sense of dimensionality, as we've been saying, and part of the sense of dimensionality, if you like, along with other aspects, is the sense of divinity. And one of the aspects whose divinity is eventually seen is the eros itself. So that the sense and the concept and the perception of my eros is the eros of divinity, is divinity's eros, is God's eros, is the Buddha's eros, is the eros of the Buddha nature, becomes one of the available senses, one of the available perceptions of eros. (coughs) Um, And... Uh, then then one could say, from a phenomenological point of view, one says, my Eros is um, creating, discovering all these aspects, facets, all this whole range of perception, including, for instance, the perception of solidity, materiality, forms, etc. My um, Eros is cr- creating, opening, revealing all those dimensions because of the soul-making process. <coughs> but because... One also has the experience in in, in this unfolding, one also has the experience in the sense that one's Eros is the divinity's Eros, is the Buddha nature's Eros. One could just as well arrive at, from the phenomenological perspective, the equivalent statement that the divinity's Eros is creating, um, discovering all these facets, all these dimensions, all these experiences, all these concepts including, for example, the sense of solidity, substantiality, materiality, as well as immateriality. So from the phenomenological perspective, we have come to something pretty equivalent to the sort of seemingly abstract, top-down statement of metaphysics the divine eros, or the divine soul, or the divine mind, or divine awareness, creates, discovers all these facets, all these dimensions, all the, these, uh, what are then experiences for for us, materiality, etc. So we've arrived at the metaphys, something that sounds pretty equivalent to the metaphysical explanation, we've arrived at it starting from phenomena from a phenomenology, starting from just our experience from what appears to us, observing that and letting that letting that uh, lead us letting that grow so we have come from through and in our own experience our own unfolding we have come to the same realisation that we might read if we pick up some (coughs) ancient metaphysical text or not so ancient metaphysical text but because it's through our experience and from our experience and we're living it in our perception through our perception it does not feel abstract we feel, we sense by virtue of the way we're arriving at it that we're participating in this it's real, it's tangible, it's palpable, it has an effect on the being and it's happening through us. We're participating in this divine eros, in this beauty, in this magnificence, in this wonder. Not abstract at all. And yet it's the same realization, it's the same insight, if you like, that we can articulate. We've just arrived at it from a different direction. That's why I said, and I'm not sure it's the best metaphor, but I can't think of another one right now, Um, the usual metaphysical way of going about things is kind of putting the cart before the horse. Uh, That which can um, pull us, for me, more convincingly uh, and and more in a way that really makes a difference to our life is um, not the... Not that we're excluding conception, but more than conception and and, and all of that is um, is is the phenomenology, the experience, the exploration, the recognition, the making delineations, the allowing the encouraging the supporting the inquiry the investigation in practice <clears throat> so again I'm, j- I'm just playing a little bit, but I'm, I'm not really. Um, Attempting to explain um, uh, the existence of matter, uh, or uh, I don't, uh, I don't know that I see a necessity to explain it. But um, but what maybe better than explain is an exploration of of these things, not of experience, <coughs> um, and what happens when we recognize the necessity of soul-making and we don't take these things as truth. We have a conceptual framework that, we, as we said, can um, hold these things without regarding them as rigid truths. There's a whole different kind of, if you like, metaphysics or direction into metaphysics there. The metaphysical. <clears throat> So Eros, allowed, unblocked, unfettered, unhindered. Uh, The Psyche, the Logos, allowed, unblocked. Um, That whole uh, complex, the Eros-Psyche-Logos dynamic is allowed. And there's the perception of the Divinity, and it will, if it's allowed, start to include that double directionality, the double movement towards the Transcendent. <clears throat> and towards the imminent, and the multiple faces and multiple experiences and concepts of divinity that will come out of that. And included in that is, is the sense of the divinity of Eros, as we said. <clears throat> and all of that could be a kind of explanation as well for the um, ascent of Eros historically <clears throat> within um culture and also within re- religious traditions, sec- within both secular and religious cultures, since there was this, um, <clears throat> at some point in history, this kind of dominance of the transcendent thrust at the expense of the, um, at the expense of, uh, well, the constraining of Eros, let's put it that way, <coughs> and, uh, and a certainly a constraining of sexual Eros and how it was regarded, and the movement towards asceticism in, in certainly at the time of the Buddha, and uh, in the um, uh, Abrahamic religions, etc. Then this ascent historically that we said can be viewed of eros that can be viewed um, as a kind of cultural movement of soul of soul making. So in the Kabbalah, which comes many centuries after the New Testament, many many millennia. Fact, uh, well, actually, I don't know when the New Testament was written. A long time, a long, long time after the um, after the New Te- after the Old Testament. Excuse me. Um, uh, the uh, in in the Kabbalah, the highest, um, was called Sefirah, which is like a kind of aspect, if you like, of, of God. There's ten Safirot in the Kabbalah, and they're kind of aspects of the divine. And the highest one is called Keter. I think it means crown. And it's higher than uh, the uh, the other uh, ones, for example, Chokhmah and Bina, which translates uh, wisdom or conception and understanding. So the highest one is called Keter, and it has a double meaning in that it can mean both uh, ayin, which is nothing. It can mean nothingness, but it can also mean uh, will or desire. So the very highest aspect of the divine, again, I'm talking about the ascent of eros um, historically, the very highest aspect is is desire. The eros of the divine. Um, so in the whole conception of what divinity is and what aspects of divinity are, if you like, the highest, <coughs> um the the uh, desire is is right up there and sometimes equated with the transcendent nothingness the i am and we've also seen i've also described how the the or faces or aspects of god um, are portrayed or symbolized or <coughs> given the um, in the image and the logos there they are um, engaged in sexual union the different aspects of of the divine of the manifestations of the divine are um, are portrayed as being in sexual union or or needing to be put back in into a sexual embrace sexual uh, relationship into lovemaking Uh That is an image, which means that that um, that symbol, that image, (coughs) in our language has many dimensions, many uh, levels of um, of what it symbolizes and resonates, etc. It is basically an image in our language. And there's also this teaching, as well as that. So this this the highest (coughs) sphere, the highest aspect of the divine, um, has the meaning of desire. There's this portrayal of different aspects of the divine being in erotic embrace, or needing to be to, to be reinstated and re, re uh, supported to 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 uh, uh, enter into erotic embrace with each other, and the fact of, of ways of. Um, conceiving of and ins- living and seeing our lives—not just our meditation, our prayer, our, our ways of looking, but also the embodiment in the action—and if we extend that, including our sexuality, our lovemaking, seeing, sensing, conceiving our lives as serving and participating in in um, in the eros, in the uh, Love making and the sexual love making. We could say in the in the sexual soul making, the erotic soul making, not just love making but soul making, of the transcendent uh, between the transcendent divine and the world. So our lives are implicated in that. Our actions, our perceptions, our our meditative trainings and openings, serving and participating the eros, <coughs> the erotic soul making making the sexual lovemaking between the transcendent divine and the, and the world between the divine that's transcendent and the divine that's so to speak in and through the world two faces of the divine and our lives are involved and implicated in that we can see that way we can feel that way we can think that way we can live that way and again as <clears throat> we've touched on in the in the buddhist tantra tantric traditions in the vajrayana there's the symbol of yab yum it's everywhere the buddha uh, this buddha or that buddha in erotic embrace uh, with uh, his consort but actually the whole thing is the buddha the buddha is the couple in erotic embrace the buddha is the couple in erotic embrace and, and again, that has many levels of implication and, and sy- symbology there. <clears throat> but it includes um, something about, as we've touched on before, the eros between, if you like, um, the transcendently divine mind, the jnana or the buddha nature, at least one aspect of that, <clears throat> on the one hand, and the mandala, which means the appearances, the divine appearances on the other So there's this um, ascent and, m- and uh, m- movement, uh, historically there's this ascent of Eros, the ways we think about it, and its movement towards um, being placed really centrally uh, in, in the symbology of the path, in the thinking of the path, etc. Now we <coughs> have been on this retreat um, thinking uh, conceiving, thinking, conceiving of eros, which should need to say at this point, but eros implies for us soul-making in the imaginal. We've been thinking and conceiving of eros as basic; like uh, we just conceive of that as something really basic. Uh, but even this uh, is—it's—we're playing. We're playing. So Hegel said. A so-called basic proposition or principle of philosophy, if true, is also false. A so-called basic proposition or principle of philosophy, if true, is also false. So we're playing with the idea of um, eros as basic. But Eros is not basic, it's not fundamental, it's a dependent origination. It's empty. And you can see in your life how how much of a dependent origination Eros is. There is actually nothing that is basic. There's nothing that is basically true. This is the understanding of emptiness, thorough emptiness. There's nothing that's basic, there's nothing that's basically true. We've been playing with the idea of eros as something basic, of soul as something basic, and even as the divinity of eros, and the divine eros as something basic. We've been playing with that. Why? Because it's soul-making. Because it's fertile. So that even if we know <coughs> that there is nothing that's basically true. We know that eros is not basic, fundamental. We can still uh, say, uh, with William Blake, uh, eternity, he wrote, by which he doesn't mean an infinite stretch, uh, like a really, really, really long time. Eternity, that which is timeless. Eternity, he wrote, is in love with the productions of time, that eros. And we could read the eternal, the timeless, the Buddha nature, the divine mind, the divine soul, which is ours in our depths, our minds, our souls are rooted in that, are that. You could say, well, we participate in this, we participate in this, Buddha nature, divine mind, divine soul that Eternity is in love with the productions of time. Talking about the Eros again, between (coughs) that um, timeless transcendent and the world, the appearances, the productions of time, perception, experience, appearance. We participate in that Eros, in that love, we are that the world is that eternity is in love with the productions of time we're not separate from that love we're not separate from that eros we're in it it's in us it's through us it's poetry Seeing that way is poetry, is writing a poetry in our perception. It does something, it does something to the being, to the experience. Soul making.